Welcome to the First Mentor Podcast. Here, you will hear us talk about a variety of topics for the entire family that will hopefully spark a discussion, create a new curiosity, or simply teach you something new. The goal is to inspire you to learn life skills and soft skills not taught in school and prepare you to live an extraordinary life. Come on and spend some time with us on your commute to school or anytime you're free. mentees and family of mentees, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the First Mentor Podcast. And this is your host and mentor, Vanessa Yang. Now, do you sometimes hear your parents complaining about gas prices and you know about the war between Russia and Ukraine, but you probably never thought about how these two events are related or have a cause and effect upon each other. Well, this episode here today is to show you how events around the world and our economy actually affects us. And for that, I have invited Keith Robinson, Chief Strategic Officer of Next Home, to share his insights and talk to us about some of the basics concepts in the area of economics. Please listen carefully and take some notes as you might even surprise the adults in your life with some of the knowledge you will acquire today. And if you live in the greater Los Angeles area, I'm super thrilled to share with you that First Mentor Street is hosting our very first Youth Leadership Summit with speakers and activities that you really don't want to miss. And all of this is going to happen on Saturday, September 17th, 2022. Check out firstmentorstreet.com forward slash events for more information about this fun-filled event where you can learn and practice all sorts of soft skills. Now, without further delay, let's dive into our conversation with Keith. Hello, everyone. And right away, I want to introduce you to my amazing guest today, Keith Robinson, Chief Strategic Officer of Next Home. Welcome to the show, Keith. How is it going? Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to introduce a topic to a youth that I think they don't discuss enough. And it's really an introduction to economics. It's like economics 101, really the basics. We're going to go through a few definitions and also give them a glimpse into when they hear things in the news, what happens in the world, in our country, how that really impacts the economy and actually their families, because a lot of people probably don't think about that. Yeah, school is important. I'm a fan of education, but I've not used too much my geometry for an isosceles triangle. I've not <laughs> used that very much. I wish I would have gotten more of explanation and an indoctrination into economics, the economy, and, and what it is and how it works. So kudos to you for trying to be the voice and help young people get some of the tools they need to be successful as they transition into slightly less young people. So this is a conversation <laughs> that I certainly wish I would have had with someone when I was in high school or, or coming out of high school. Absolutely. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about, bringing things to the forefront, to their mind. I always say many times, especially when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. And I remember yeah. when I was young, 
I didn't care about economics. Everything on the news was just boring. <laughs> right. I mean, we're naturally wired to not think something is cool that our parents think is interesting when we're 16, 18, 20, right? Like, Very true. Economy, inflation, gas prices, like boring, right? Yes. But accounting and economics are the language of money. And if you aren't fluent in the language of money, you are going to struggle or it'll be harder for you to be successful with money until you learn that language. I've got two daughters, one ten, one four. They just have Bloomberg on around in the background all the time. And, you know, so sadly they are getting indoctrinated with it, whether they want it or not. But I try to make sure that they understand what money is, how it works, because it's a really important skill. Money is just a tool, right? Money is just a, a vehicle for creating and architecting the life you want. You want to retire early? Cool. You need to understand money. You want to buy a house? Cool. You need to understand money. You want a private jet someday? Cool. You better really understand money. Right? Yes. It's just learning the language of money so that you can take this tool and, and architect and engineer the kind of life you want. Yes. And I love it that you already starting with your kids so young. My husband loves investing in the stock market. So he's been talking to our younger son all the time. So he's taking an investment class and he already knows all these things because his daddy's talking to him about the stock market all the time. It's so good for him. You know, always wanted for our listeners to get to know our guests a little bit. Keith Robinson, as you said, Chief Strategy Officer for Next Home. We're a national real estate franchisor. We have 588 offices across the country. I've been in residential real estate leadership for 21 years. I am not an economist. I am our resident economic nerd though. I pay very close attention to movements in the marketplace as new things like Bitcoin and other things come into the economy. I try to figure out what that means and what that could mean for our company. Yes, absolutely. And that's really many times it's about interest. If you're interested in a topic that you observe and follow on a regular basis, you probably know a lot more than somebody who might have a degree in it. And that was 20 years ago. Economists tend to think people act rationally, and I don't. I think people act like people. You're right. There are some things you can learn in a classroom, but passion trumps formal education because I keep learning about it all the time, every day. And that doesn't mean if you're an economist, you don't, but they need to have passion around it. To Absolutely. Continue. And this is why we're going to start with the basics sure. for our young audience. It's really giving them an idea of what some of the terms mean that they might hear in the news or they might hear their backgrounds, talk to their friends. So let's talk about the first one, which probably has been floating around recently, is recession. What does yeah. that really mean? I will get to that in two seconds. But before I answer that, it, remember, I use that analogy. It's like uh, the language of money, right? Yes. And it truly is a foreign language. And when I started, I was probably 21 or 22 years old. I would turn on CNBC or Bloomberg, and I would literally not understand 30 or 40% of the words they were saying. That bothered me. This is about the economy and money and how things work. And I don't know or many of these words. What I did was just started just watching it for an hour a day. I've heard from people who have learned English. Many of them learned it by studying, of course, but also a lot by watching TV. That's right? me. Yes. And see, so <laughs> if you just have it on and in the background while you're you know, playing Fortnite or whatever it is you're doing, have it on and in the background, 
some of that goes in there and you hear it enough times and you kind of start to understand a little bit better. So like anything, exposure to it consistently and persistently in, in little bursts or bigger bursts over time, you don't have to sit in a dark room with CNBC on for 10 hours a day, yeah. just have it on when you're in the background instead of music or your favorite podcast for a little while, just have it on there while, while you're doing stuff. Okay. Recession. Recession is one of those big, scary words. All it means is we have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. Now, let me explain GDP first. Exactly. <laughs> GDP just means gross domestic product. It's a tool that measures the output of a country. So every country has a gross domestic product or a GDP. In general, the bigger the number, the better your country is doing. The lower the number, the more your country is struggling. And a negative number means the economy of your country is actually shrinking. And so a recession is just two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And just to give our audience an idea of numbers, in the it's, current time, what, what are we talking about when we hear it? It's a percentage number. If it's a negative number, you obviously want it to be as low as possible. But technically, if it was down 0.01%, which is very low, for two quarters in a row, that would technically be a recession but you wouldn't feel much or any difference in your day-to-day -day life as you were running around because basically that just mean everything kind of stayed the same, but it was technically negative. And not all recessions are the same. Your listeners may not remember 2008 or they might have some sort of vague memory of it, of their parents being super stressed out because that was a really bad one. The whole economy shut down. We That's had- right financial institutions completely, the money supply completely seized up. It was a very bad recession, took us several years to dig out of it. And it was a really, really bad one. We also had one in 2000 that almost no one noticed because it was slightly negative GDP for two quarters. And then we took back off again. So it's a percentage-based number. There are times where it moves a lot like 2008, and that was painful to experience. And there are times where it moves very little, but it might be negative and we kind of don't notice. The other one I actually talk to my children about, so I use this sometimes, is supply and demand, how it relates to each other. And can you help yeah. explain that a little bit? Supply is just the availability of goods and demand is how bad people want them, right? If you want a pair of Yeezys, why are they so much more expensive than a pair of Converse? Kanye decided he's only going to produce so many shoes and then he wears them in his videos and gets his friends to wear them. So everybody wants them. So there's a very low supply of Yeezys and a very high demand. That's why they cost a thousand bucks. Well, you can get a pair of Chuck Taylors on Amazon and they're in any color you want and they will show up in 24 hours and they're cool, but they're not like as cool as Yeezys. So Supply very high, demand is the demand, but probably not at the same level for the other pair of shoes. So that's why Chuck Taylors are $49 or whatever they are today, <laughs> and Yeezys are $1,049. I always use that in our daily life because sometimes my children ask me, I remember when I was trying to get BTS tickets uh, for their concerts. <laughs> and yeah. right, that's like a perfect one. I remember I spoke to my daughter about it and it was expensive. Luckily, my friend got in early. But afterwards, when they sold out like hotcakes, 
they were thousands of dollars. And I had to explain to them, why is it so expensive? Because again, supplies wasn't there, but the demand was huge. So people yeah. are willing to pay more and more just to get a piece of that pie or to attend the concert in this case. But Perfect. definitely. And the supply in that instance is limited. They're only in town for one night. The supply is incredibly limited. And if demand is really high, then that puts upward pressure on price. Yes. And the inverse is true. If the supply is everywhere, then that puts downward pressure on price. Yeah. And that's when you get things on sale. That's right. You got it. Exactly. <laughs> and related to that, the last few years, especially, you know, in Los Angeles, we've heard about how we had supply chain issues, yeah. right? With the ports and what have you, and even with the start of the pandemic. So we've been hearing about that a lot. What does that really mean? Supply chain is the new buzzword. I had never heard that before three years ago. And now it's really in almost every economic conversation that you have. The supply chain just means we have a global economy now. Many of our goods and services come from all over the world. So the shoes that you buy, the jeans that you buy, the sweatshirt that you buy uh, may be made in America, but it also might be made overseas. And that means that all that stuff has to get shipped and brought to the United States. And it's got to get the raw cotton has to go somewhere and get turned into cloth. Then the cloth has to go somewhere and get turned into a sweatshirt. Then the sweatshirt has to go somewhere and get put into a store. And then the store has to sell that sweatshirt to you. Those are all the moving pieces. Well, a long, 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 long time ago, it all used to happen in the same country. Well, I mean, if you go back far enough, it all happened in the same city, right? Someone yes. would shear a sheep, they would make you some old-timey Western-looking hoodie, right? Now, the economy is global. You might have raw cotton coming from one country that's getting shipped to a different country, which is getting turned into the cloth, then it goes somewhere else to get turned into the hoodie, and then it gets shipped to America so that we can buy it. That's the supply chain. How that moves from a raw good to a consumer good is what the supply chain is. The reason that you keep hearing about the supply chain is basically when COVID hit, the whole world stopped. They weren't shearing sheep. They weren't turning cotton into cloth. They weren't turning cloth into hoodies and we weren't going out and buying anything. Literally within a two or three week period, it just dropped like a rock. That's right. And the hard part is you can stop it faster than you can restart it. And what I mean by that is like, if you were in PE and if you were sprinting, if you're trying to run a 40 yard dash, when they say go, when you start running, you've got to build up momentum to get to speed. And you're slower in the first 10 yards of a 40 yard dash than you'll be in the last 10 yards of a 40 yard dash because Getting into motion is the hardest part. Getting right. things moving is the hardest part. And then once you're going, you can incrementally speed up a little bit or slow down a little bit. But getting things going is the hardest part. It's easier to stop. We did that. And then we started trying to get it back going. But that takes longer than we thought. Plus, we had never experienced a global hit the stop button on every mm. economy across Not the like world. That. All of it. Suddenly, things that were working pretty well as a well-oiled machine, you end up with broken parts or parts that take longer. To use my 40-yard dash analogy, not everything speeds up at the same pace. So you might yes. get stuff onto ships quicker, right? So we can get production back and we get these sweatshirts onto ships quicker. That's great. 
but the ports can only unload so many ships per day, period. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so that place is where we saw some bottlenecks. And there were uh, literally, (laughs) there were companies that you could buy data on for how many ships were sitting outside the port of Long Beach to get some idea of how bad the supply chain. You had literally dozens or hundreds of ships, a lot of ships sitting outside waiting in line to come in to unload because the ports can only unload so many ships at a time. That's the supply chain. And the other word nowadays that we hear probably a lot about is inflation. So let's talk about that a little bit. Inflation just means the cost for goods have gone up. Like something costs more today than it costs before. When I was a kid and I used to run down to 7-Eleven to buy a candy bar, they were like a quarter. And I could get the little ones, like the little candies for a nickel. And you're probably laughing because I sound really old right now. I'm only 51. Like I'm not that old, right? I don't know what a candy bar is today. Was it maybe a dollar or something like that? So that's inflation. Something used to cost X and now it costs Y. And there is a natural upward pressure on price. We have seen historically in the country roughly 2% per year inflation. 2 to 3% is kind of the norm. Things just get more expensive over time. There's a bunch of factors into that. Sometimes you're paying your workers more, costs of fuel might go up, just everything just gets a little more expensive over time. It's normal. We have had two to three percent appreciation often. That's very common. And right now we're at eight percent, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not as common. And that's why it's getting all the headlines right now. And it's actually kind of back to that supply and demand discussion that we started with. When people went on lockdown, they couldn't buy anything. Their ability to buy stuff was tempered. The supply became dramatically impacted as well. So supply went down and demand went up. That meant everybody was willing to pay more for stuff. And so because everyone was willing to pay more for stuff, price went up a lot. Then we had uh, the war in Ukraine, which has impacted oil and some of those prices. So it's kind of back to that, like that supply and demand piece. Like if your listeners wanted to say, okay, what's one thing I could like really get wrap my head around after this? If you figure out supply and demand and how the relationship between those two things, that's a very valuable and great place to start. Absolutely. The reason we've had such high inflation is because demand went through the roof at the same time that supply was artificially low because of the pandemic. That's right. Absolutely. The other thing we hear about in the news a lot is probably terms like the Federal Reserve Bank, right? Yeah. So what do they do for us? The Federal Reserve basically tries to be a governor or a regulator of the economy. The Great Depression was pretty rough. I wasn't around. I'm not that old, uh, (laughs) but it was a bad one and it lasted a long time. And so the Fed, what it tries to do is you want to take the peaks and valleys out of our economy. When the economy is running really, really hot, if it runs too hot for too long, then that means the down is going to be really painful. What the Fed tries to do is when it's running really hot and going really well, They want to slow down the economy so that it doesn't grow too much too fast. When it's struggling and limping along and needs some help, the Fed will try to do some things to stimulate the economy 
so that more people are borrowing and spending and, and doing things that, that grow the economy. So the Fed just tries to slow down or speed up the economy based around what it thinks the U.S. economy needs. Yeah, they're just supporting of both ends, just like you said, to smooth yep. things out a little bit. And one tool they use to help manipulate the economy a little bit, so to speak, is interest rates, right? Because they are involved in determining what the interest rates are. And I yeah. know most of our listeners probably understand what that means, but let's talk about interest rates in economic terms. Basically, you've got your money in a bank, right? Let's pick Wells Fargo. You put your money in a bank, then Wells Fargo takes your money and lends it to someone else. That's how banks make money, right? That's And when they lend it, they charge you interest on what you're borrowing. But imagine if Wells Fargo ran out of money. Like if you went to Wells Fargo and said, hey, I want to borrow some money. And they're like, sorry, we're out. We don't have enough people that made deposits. We're out of money. Well, that would be weird and that would be hard for Wells Fargo. So what Wells Fargo can do is call the Fed and say, hey, Fed, Keith wants to borrow a half a million bucks to buy a house. I don't have any more deposits to lend out. So people haven't put enough money in my bank. I need to borrow some from you so that I can lend it to Keith. And that is called the Fed funds rate. And the Federal Reserve will lend money to Wells Fargo so that they can lend money to me. And then Wells Fargo will pay the Fed uh, for borrowing that money at the set rate, which is called the Fed funds rate. So the theory is, if the Fed is willing to lend money to, at, to Wells Fargo at a cheaper rate, then Wells Fargo should lend it to me at a cheaper rate. Mm -hmm. And so they can try to speed up the economy because more people borrowing more money means they spend more money. So that speeds up the economy by lowering the Fed funds rate so that Wells Fargo will borrow it at a lower rate and then lend it to me at a lower rate. If the Fed wants to slow down the economy, the Fed will make it more expensive for Wells Fargo to borrow money from them. And then Wells Fargo will raise the rate that they want to charge me. And then in theory, I'll spend less or make different buying decisions because of the cost of money. That's right. And just to take it a step further for our listeners to understand. So I'm going to continue with the example of you, Keith, right? If you borrow money from Wells Fargo, you can invest it to expand your business. And then you need to hire employees so you can pay people. And those people now make money and they can spend it on goods and services and put that back into our economy. And that's how we're growing. Yeah. Let's use a real like sort of nuts and bolts example. Let's say I was a plumber and I've got a van and I'm doing well as a plumber and I'm literally working six days a week because I'm so busy and I'm turning down business because there's just not enough hours in the day. Well, wouldn't it be cool if my buddy Vanessa, who's also a plumber, and then I could buy a van and I could get it all fitted out and buy all the tools I need and hire Vanessa to be a plumber. And then she could go out on some of these jobs too and I could make more money. Well, I don't have that cash laying around. So I need to go borrow from Wells Fargo so I can buy a van and have money for payroll and buy all the tools that we need. So that's a real life example of how small business might try to grow by borrowing money from Wells Fargo. So I'm more likely to do it if that money is cheaper and I'm less likely to do it if that money is more expensive. Great example there. And I know you're well-known and well-spoken in the real estate market. So let's just give our opinion. listeners a little bit of a glimpse into how that all fits in into the economy. I'm biased. So let me start there. I'm <laughs> a 21-year real estate fan. It is, in my opinion, 
the investment with the exception of 2008 uh, in that time period where where real estate got a little weird. It is for many people, the single best investment they've ever made. So I'm a huge fan of residential real estate. I think it's a massive wealth builder. I think it is a huge contributor to generating wealth and generational wealth for families. So yeah, it's a massive driver of the economy. So the IRS is the government's internal revenue service, and that is who you pay your taxes to. There are not too many ways to reduce your tax, sadly. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. You know, I'm happy to send it and that stuff, but one of the exemptions that they have, or one of the ways you can save on taxes is actually by buying a home. Homeowner's interest is deductible on your taxes. And someday you'll learn about that and you'll be excited when you get there. And why? It's an interesting question, right? You think about why, like, why would they let us deduct the interest on purchasing a home but not the interest on, say, credit cards or buying a car or whatever. And the reason for it is twofold. One, the massive generational wealth creation that can happen through it. The government wants more people buying a home for that. That's a good thing. Two, when you buy a home, you buy a lot more stuff, right? Oh, you my God. So buy, true. <laughs> right? You buy curtains. You buy drapes. All of a sudden, that couch that was fine for the last five years looks kind of busted and dusty in your brand new house. And so suddenly, you feel like you, quote, unquote, need a new couch. Uh, the bed that worked great in, in the old house may not fit in the new bedroom, right? Or uh, and on and on. You got to rent a U-Haul or hire movers. You've got to buy boxes. You've got to buy tape. You've got to buy packing material. There are so many other transactions that happen by going through the process of home ownership that the government wants to reward you or encourage you or entice you into purchasing a home for two primary reasons. One, generational wealth creation. Two, a massive amount of other purchases happen when you buy a home. So it's a great stimulator for the economy. Fantastic. I never thought about it that way, but you make sense. Ever since I got my home, I we've been shopping a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you, you buy a lot of stuff. Your bookshelves, that you, everything that you used to have doesn't work as well anymore or doesn't look as good as it used to in the new house, right? Yes. And so you end up buying a whole lot of stuff. Yes. I know we talked about GDP earlier, so that was great. The other last definition I would like you to go through really quick is CPI, the Consumer Price Index. So CPI, Consumer Price Index, is just a measure of inflation. And it is a basket of goods that they track and see how the price has changed on that month over month. It's a pretty good indicator of how inflation is doing. It's sometimes referred to as the quote unquote headline inflation. It's a good indicator of, of the direction of inflation. There are several others. I won't bore your audience with the nuance there, but it's a good one to sort of wrap your head around first. Yes, absolutely. And earlier, Keith, you mentioned a few historic incidences since we're in a recession right now, and there have been recessions prior to us, right? Even though they happened in the past, some of our young listeners either were really young or maybe not even born at that point. Sure. But sure. you probably still hear people refer to it. And I just wanted to go to a few of them. As you mentioned, both you and I weren't around for the Great Depression, but we still hear about it all the time till today. Mm -hmm. 
that was like right in the 1920s and we still hear about it and 2008 is something we hear about but let's talk about yeah a few of those significant ones that might still be referred to today sure great depression was from the late 1920s into the early 1930s so think about you and your three best friends right and one of them every time doesn't have a job unemployment was at like 25%. That means one out of every four people you know was unemployed in the Great Depression. There were whole swaths of the country where unemployment was even higher. And it was this sort of stacking effect of you had a Wall Street issue. Then there was the Dust Bowl was created where farms were just obliterated because we had a massive heat wave that took out farms. And all these things sort of stacked on top of each other and created nearly 25% unemployment, which is historical, painful. We had unemployment rates that were comparable during the pandemic, but that was for like three months, right? It wasn't for like three years. So you literally were unemployed and had people who could not find work. And I know that sounds kind of crazy to us, but it was a time where that was really the case there were deep scars that were mental scars that were during the Great Depression. And it is the worst financial times in our country ever. So that's why you hear about it all the time. So we always talk about the best and the worst, right? True, (laughs) very true. I won't say I've studied it, but I've read about it a bit. And it was a bad one. As you move forward, the second worst one that we've had was what they dubbed the Great Recession, though you could call it a depression if you wanted to. But 2008 was a rough, 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 rough recession. Some of the numbers during 2008 were worse than actually the Great Depression. And then the pandemic recession, those are probably the big three. You can't extrapolate or you can't really learn a ton from an outlier event like a pandemic, right? But definitely 2008, very bad recession. They call it the Great Recession instead of the Great Depression. We've had them almost every decade. Roughly every 10 years, we have a recession, right? And remember, recession just means things slow down and go negative for two quarters, for six months, minimum. And depression, things went negative for years. 2008, the Great Recession, things went negative for years, two years, not as long as the Great Depression. We had the dot-com bubble in the mid, I think it was 94, 95. And I actually think this current recession that we might be in, we're not sure yet, we've Q1, quarter one of this year was negative GDP. My guess is Q2, when it's all done, will be negative Mm -hmm. GDP. And then we'll technically be in a recession. We'll see. But the dot-com, I know it sounds crazy, but the internet was new in 1994, right? Hard to believe for our listeners. (laughs) Hard to believe, right? Like we used to say, you're going to laugh, but we used to say www.google.com. Like that, we actually would say the www part. All the time. Um, All the time, which is hilarious. And you should make fun of us for it. Now we just say Google. We just say the the core name of the URL. So it was a new thing. And uh, companies were getting insane valuation. People were just throwing money at anyone with a good idea and and a good URL. And some of them were too early. Like I remember there was a company that was going to be delivering groceries. And it was just too early. Right. I was like, man, that's cool. I never have to go to the grocery store again, but (laughs) people weren't ready yet. Right now people do it all the time. 
there was a very frothy stock market. I like to use a Wall Street versus a Main Street recession. So Wall Street is in New York. That's where the New York Stock Exchange is. Sometimes there are problems on Wall Street, but they don't make it all the way to Main Street, which is where we all live. Now, I'm in the Bay Area. That's where I'm from. That's where I was born and raised. We had a higher unemployment in the Bay Area during the dot-com recession, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is the epicenter of it. That's but, right. You know, I went to college in Missouri. My friends in Kansas City were like, what recession? I'm fine, <laughs> right? With the exception of the values on the stock market going down, there wasn't massive unemployment in Kansas City. It wasn't as big a deal. So dot-com in 94, we had a very tepid or very mild recession in the early 2000s. No one even noticed. I mean, literally no one ever talks about it. No one even noticed. So the point of this, I guess, all is and recession is a word. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's no big deal. We have something in psychology called recency bias, which means if something has happened to us recently, we think the same thing is going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And no two recessions are the same. Every recession has been unique with different things that started it, caused it, and created it. And this recession will be different than the last one, which will be different than the next one. Absolutely, absolutely. But I know you mentioned what the COVID-19 pandemic has, the way it has impacted the economy is very unique. But I just wanted to touch upon it a little bit because that's the current time we're in yeah, for our listeners yeah, to understand sure. how has it impacted our economy? I mean, in every way, right? I mean, it's so weird to think like, on a Monday, we were all going to Target and going to, you know, out to dinner and doing whatever we were doing. And then on a Wednesday, everyone stopped spending, right? So if you think about uh, hotels, so what they call travel and leisure, that's going out to dinner, going to movies, you know, going on vacation, that market segment was hard stop overnight for almost two years. Yes. Yes. So that was rough on them, right? It was really rough. My industry, all of a sudden, everybody was staying home more. And they were kind of thinking like, I'm working from home now. I got two kids. I, you know, I'm working from the kitchen table. And, you know, I got Barney on in the background and <laughs> Teletubbies on a tablet with one kid. And I'm trying to do a Zoom meeting with my butt. Like, this is not working. And so real estate was very unimpacted for the most part. There were some parts where it stopped and was deemed non-essential, but for the most part, real estate kept chugging on right along. But the supply chain issues that we already talked about is a huge piece of, of the pandemic and, and what it's done to the economy. Yeah. You basically had everything stop and then everything roar back, which is why we've got inflation right now. It was a unique one. And just like you said, I, I feel like it's not equal for every single industry, right? Some, like you said, just shut down overnight, haven't seen anything. I, I worked at the Walt Disney Company for over 11 years. So yeah. I remember my parents were saying who worked for the park division, nothing, like literally gone overnight. Yeah. But right. on the other side, because we were spending more time at home, the streaming companies, Netflix, even the Disney Plus part, everything else, because people are staying home watching TV, they had phenomenal results. I read articles about the real estate market. People were like, I cannot live in a two bedroom with uh, two kids, you know, a family. We need to buy a house. All of a sudden, people were, were trying to buy more moving. So it really has a huge impact, just like you said. But 
different for different industries. Like if you looked at Amazon, how it was doing, because everybody was afraid of going out, they just purchased everything online. They were yep. doing phenomenal too. Amazon was killing it. Uh, Netflix was killing it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally couldn't leave the house. So if you were the like one of four people that didn't have Netflix, you were going to go figure it out, right? You were going to go get it. So, and, and like you said, Amazon was way up. Well, now it's less up, right? Uh, Netflix having a rough quarter because they were artificially high. Yes. There was an exterior event that created this artificial run up. Now you're seeing some of those sectors retrench or move back a little bit. Yeah. And the other part, we probably feel a little bit more certain parts of the country of the gas prices just suddenly yeah. overnight increasing too. I think we're seeing close to $7 at time too. So yeah, can you explain to our listeners what happened there? Why are the gas yeah. prices so high? There's a, a few things at work there. One is the supply chain stuff that we already talked about that I won't really unpack again. Food and gas and oil tend to be very volatile. It just has big movements up and down. For example, we always see gas prices go up. This is a good, another opportunity to practice supply and demand. We always see gas prices go up in the summertime. Why? Well, because people are taking road trips and car trips and families are on vacation. So demand is up. Supply is the same. So you see price go up. It's normal. You see seasonality in the summertime. Price Mm -hmm. of gas is higher uh, than it is at other times. So that's a supply and demand curve. So we had supply chain issues where we had we had less gas than we normally have. Then we are coming into the summertime where prices would have been higher than normal today anyway. And then you layer on top one of the uh, largest gas and oil producers is Russia. And Russia uh, went to war with Ukraine. What happened is it's not actually impactful for us. We only import about 3% of our gas and oil from Russia. So it was very easy for us to go, nah, we're not going to buy anymore. No problem. The problem is, is the European countries were very dependent on gas and oil from Russia. So again, back to supply and demand. Suddenly you had Germany, France, uh, England, a bunch of other countries saying, no, we're not going to buy your gas anymore, Russia. We're going to buy it from other places or we're going to try to not buy it from you. Supply went down artificially because we just decided we weren't going to buy their oil and gas anymore because we're mad at you, right? And we should be, right? So that's fine. Yes. So now supply is down because Russian oil isn't available to us, but demand is the same. So while it didn't impact us from the standpoint of our production or what we need, all of a sudden Germany, France, England, and others have to buy oil from the same places that we're buying oil. And so as a global economy, price for gas and oil goes up because of supply chain, goes up because of seasonality, and then it goes up again because of the war in Ukraine. You take those three things at the same time and you end up with $7 gas. Yes, absolutely. Going back to inflation and supply and demand, when I first started driving and when I first got to the US, I remember a gallon cost a little bit less than a dollar, right? I keep telling my kids that that's how the price was back in the late 90s. So definitely seeing a huge change there. Absolutely. 
before I let you go, Keith, because this was really helpful for our listeners just to get an introduction, I wanted to see in case they're interested to learn a little bit more about, you know, Next Home, your business, and maybe if you could share like your social media accounts or a website where they can find out some more information if they're curious. Sure. Nexthome.com is where you can find out more about Next Home. Find me on Instagram. I'm Keith underscore Robinson. On Instagram, that's probably the best place uh, to track me now. Yes. And I know you always have little snippets of the economy there. And I love it how you put it in layman's terms. I try. If you want to follow me, please do. I'll do my best not to be a boring old guy uh, (laughs) to keep it interesting for you. Well, thanks so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate our conversation. My pleasure. And thank you for doing this. It's such a worthwhile and needed and necessary thing. I will come back anytime you want to ask me anything. Yes, we should talk about real estate next time, maybe. Let's do it. I'd be happy to. Okay. Thanks so much, Keith. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Keith Robinson. Now, what did you learn today that really surprised you or sparked your curiosity to learn more about? Because many times we really think economy doesn't really concern us or impact us, right? I certainly thought so when I was younger. But as I studied business and worked in this field for so many years, I actually think we all should know at least some of the basics. Don't you agree? Anyways, I wanted to thank you for spending time with us today and we'll talk to you in the next episode. Have an amazing week. Mm -hmm.